Welcome to Bit of a Tangent. It's 2020 and we are back to bring you mind-bending ideas from science, philosophy, artificial intelligence and medicine. For our loyal listeners who reached out during our radio silence, thank you for your kind words and patience. But we have no doubt that you will love what we have in store for you all in coming episodes. For those newcomers who are wondering who I am and what this is all about, I'm Gianluca, an AI grad student. And as always, I'll be joined by my brilliant co-host Jared, the insatiably curious medical student who just, you know, does deep learning on the side. Over the festive season, he took to Twitter and shared the 19 ideas he couldn't stop thinking about in 2019. It was actually so insightful and popular that I suggested we share his thoughts on a bit of a tangent. So uh, that's what's in store for today's episode. We end up discussing everything from mechanism design to personal fitness hacks and even throw in some recommendations for supercharging your learning in the new year. So strap yourselves in for a taste of the fascinating conversations that lie ahead in 2020. There are about three dozen things mentioned in this episode that you're going to want to find afterwards. So please make sure to check out the show notes for all those titles and links. You'll also find links to follow us on Twitter, where we not only entertain you with our pedantry and witticisms, but also put up polls for episode topics and bonus content. It is great to be back, folks. We can't wait to take this podcast to the next level, and we are thrilled to have you listening. And so, without further ado, here's the episode of Bit of a Tangent. You had a really good post on on Twitter, a really good thread that was what was it, nineteen ideas from twenty nineteen that you couldn't stop thinking about. Yes, um, and you had some really fascinating stuff in there and really poignant concepts that you've been throwing around and we've been discussing sort of casually. So I'm interested to know if you've got any that you you want to throw out there that we'll probably delve deeper into at a later stage. But just to whet the appetite of of all our faithful listeners who have patiently waited to hear from us for weeks and weeks <laughs> yeah they're all thinking what faithful no 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 like we're gonna have to rebuild an entire audience from scratch but yeah from scratch yeah like this is, this is episode <laughs> one here we go starting all over again here we go we can change the name we can we'll both be less tangential we promise <laughs> so i'm thinking maybe what we could do i mean you tell me if you're up for it but we could even open up that that thread and we could walk through it and, and like talk around each one i mean it, that is that is a great idea uh, that's that's, do that's that. best idea of 2020 so far Jamie, Jamie, pull that up. Let's not get let's not get sidetracked. Yeah, that would be bad. Trend, trending in the Netherlands. Hashtag kiss a ginger day. Oh, nice. I was born ginger. Um, all right. So this first tweet was about why we so often fail. And it sort of reads, much of life's challenge consists of holding ourselves to a high enough standard. Almost anything serves to convince us that we have tried our hardest, and yet we usually have more to give. And that was from somewhere in the sequences by Elias Yadkowski. I think that's the first mention of him in 2020, so there we go. Wow. <laughs> Incredible. So I wrote that because it really struck me that most of the things I was failing to do is just because my standard for them, like what I would consider a passing grade, was just low. And... The easiest analogy for this is is with a workout, right? Often you'll 
go to the gym and I think you can very easily convince yourself you're there, you want to lift some weights. You can just tell yourself you're tired and you'll believe yourself and you'll put the weights down, you'll go home. And Mm. the first time that you truly realize that you're definitely bullshitting yourself, then you kind of realize that you're probably doing this in other areas as well. You're probably telling yourself this story about how you did your best there and it just didn't happen for you, right? And I think the defining characteristic of just an almost annoying number of, of successful people is this like inability to to either take no for an answer or to give up on something that like they've decided they want to make happen. And so this idea of how hard you've tried, I think, is just key because where you set your your limit there will become kind of a defining feature. And I think this should be caveated with the idea that this probably won't make you happy most of the time. It might make you more satisfied in the long run, especially if you achieve meaningful things and improve aspects of your life, social life, physical, all of those as well. But for for a large portion of the time, it's going to mean that you are unsatisfied right? Like a neural network doesn't do any learning if there's no error, right? So if if you have very high standards and you're constantly falling short of them, which you always should be if they are going to be functional, if you need to, if you, if you want to know which direction to move in, you need to know where your error is. But that means a lot of the time you're going to feel like you're failing and falling short. And so I think it's important to sort of, just because we're limited by sort of many biological and emotional factors, to counterpoint that by just not letting it get to you and i think i think there are a few a few ways to do that and one of them we might uh bring up in the future um with like the ideas of like replacing guilt but 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 that's uh definitely a conversation for another time but yeah so i will say that it's it's a double-edged sword in some sense um but it's definitely seems to be a secret sort of hack to improving anything right it's like you set set a high standard calculate the error take a step in that direction yeah, I think that's that's the fundamental building block of of improvement is is that tight feedback loop. So the second one is that our biggest civilizational challenges are almost all coordination problems wearing various disguises. See more on Meditations on Moloch by Slaystar Codex. Mechanisms to price public goods and externalities cooperate in prisoner's dilemma type situations are vital. And for more on this, see the work of Glenn Weil, particularly his book Radical Markets, which I read last year and I absolutely loved. And this was a recurring theme last year. I think we discussed this at length. And and we, in fact, did a whole episode on, on, episode on <laughs> Moloch, which was, I think, episode seven. Yeah, well, <laughs> civilization, Moloch and civilizational inequality, something along those lines. So definitely we'll link it. But that, for me, like that was one of my favorite episodes, favorite discussions. I think one of our best discussions. And... It was just early enough on that like not that many people were listening at the time. So a lot of people listening to this might not have heard that. And it's definitely one that I think we could be quite proud of and is worth checking out. Yeah. So I think obviously this is rooted in in the game theory idea of, you know, if you have a prisoner's dilemma type situation, if you use sort of traditional rationality or, or game theory, the stable strategy becomes for both prisoners to defect, right? And we see this almost everywhere where our civilization is failing to be optimal, right? You see mm. countries not signing carbon treaties because it's in their interest to make their industry um, more profitable and, and bring benefit to their citizens because then that government stays in power. But then, of course, other yeah. governments say, well, if you're not going to, I'm not going to because it's also in their interest. Exactly. Right? And yeah. you see this amongst groups of friends. You see this amongst 
businesses, you see this amongst people trying to organize taxes or organize governments. When humans have to cooperate at scale, we are systematically failing to devise mechanisms which can not force, but encourage and incentivize cooperation, right? And so if there's, you know, I mean, when I sometimes think, and I know that you do this too, about the the big problems, right? The the problems that you would be willing to devote a career to. And, yeah. you know, in my now role as medical student come computational neuroscientist and very amateur at that, apparently... <laughs> Um, game theory and, and coordination is, is what I would love to solve. And it is, it's just, it's so, so important. And the reason I, I tagged Dan Weil in this is because reading that book was the first time that I saw a glimmer of hope in a while. It was the first, like, it was the first truly new idea on this that I've ever really seen. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, I think, yeah, there's so much to go into on that. And it's one of the things that I just haven't been able to put down as an idea for months approaching a year now um and 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 i think we do a fairly good treatment of explaining some of the concepts and backgrounds here like if if you've heard of some of these terms but don't really know what they mean if you've got a vague idea what the prisoner's dilemma is but don't really understand much about game theory or uh, nash equilibrium whatever i think we do a, a decent treatment of this in the beginning of that episode on meditations on moloch the all the the our episode rendition of that and we i think frame things quite nicely and so a great Part two to that episode, I think we'll be digging into Glenn Wilde's work, digging into Vitalik Buterin's work, um, ideas like quadratic voting and uh, quadratic funding and... The Harburg attack. Yeah, oh my God, it's such beautiful, such beautiful ideas. Uh, and just, you know, like, okay, so these are what these coordination problems are. You know, like, you know, when you, you only have those situations where like you and a bunch of friends want to meet up and someone posts on the WhatsApp group, hey guys, let's meet up. And everyone's like, yeah, let's do it. But you never end up meeting up. That's probably because of the coordination problem. <laughs> I think you just need better friends, Jean-Luca. <laughs> well, we do a pretty good job of that because we, we've, we've mechanism designed our friendship, you know, so that's, uh, that's, the, that's the trick. So, that was the idea of podcasting. <laughs> well, right, exactly. Like that's, that's actually, that's a freaking brilliant example right there, right? So, so mechanism design is where you, you reconstruct the game in the game theory sense, just some interaction between multiple players uh, such that the sort of state that everyone tends towards, the Nash equilibrium, is the state that's best for everyone, right? So the prisoner's dilemma example that most people are familiar with is overall, it's better if both prisoners cooperate with each other. It's, it's, it's better for, for like the sum total of society in, in that regard, at least for both prisoners. But yet it's in each of their own interests to sort of defect against the other. And so they both end up defecting, which is a lower outcome. Same kind of thing with tragedy of the commons. You, you end up with everyone acting in their own best interests, sort of doing what they almost have to do and forced to do ends up with a suboptimal social outcome. Um, so that happens a lot of the time in social interactions with meeting up with friends, with organizing parties, all these kinds of things. And so we used to have this experience of having fantastic conversations that we both really enjoyed and found really interesting and wanted to you know, revisit and have more frequently. But it's just hard because life gets in the way. So mechanism design was when we went, oh, hey, let's start a podcast because that puts it in a record. It creates commitment. It you know, creates this sort of external third driving factor, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, for by all measures, it seems to have worked pretty damn well. Yeah, I mean, if you just, if you don't count December 2019. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So, so, so that's, that's a great example, actually, of mechanism design solving a coordination problem in some sense. I mean, we're still not particularly good at coordinating our, our schedules. We're still, still working on that still one. Still working on that but, one. Uh, but we'll get there. More mechanisms, I think. Um, and we actually discussed some of those on one of our 
our walks when we met up in person recently. So uh, I think uh, we'll, 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 we'll have some more content going out there. But I'm super excited to dig into this idea of mechanism design, uh, solving coordination and alignment problems, and just everything related to defeating that motherfucker Malak um, this year. <laughs> so looking forward to that. And uh, yeah. Yeah. So number three is that podcasting or just content creation in general is overpowered. People are hungry for ideas. And even if only a few people listen or watch or read, you've affected their life trajectories in surprising, positive, and innumerable ways. And mm. I think this just came out of realizing that we put out a sort of small podcast starting last year, recording on Google Hangouts when we had time. We both mm. learned to edit, and I'm going to say edit badly because my job is still subpar. No, actually not. Eh. I'm going to cut that out. Yeah, you'll cut it out in the edits. I'll cut it out in the edits. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how good your edits I was going to say, it's probably a bad idea to tell people that you edit something badly because you'll frame it such that they'll find more editing mistakes. Exactly. It's probably yeah. not the right way. We edit so well. We're the best editors, folks. We are the you. best editors. So <laughs> the thing is, this all came out of just the idea that you don't know what effect your words will have on someone. And this relates to the sort of fourth tweet, which was that, the unreasonable effectiveness of raising the aspirations of others, right? And this came from Tyler Cowen. And if you encourage those you're close to to be just a little bit more ambitious, this has a disproportionately big impact with little cost or effort to you, right? And so I think both of us noticed this last year. We started this small podcast, you know, edited in our spare time. And yet in terms of the impact of things I've ever done, it's right up there, you know, with yeah. going to university at all in terms of, the kinds of conversations I've had and, and and people I've met and just putting your voice out there without hoping for or wishing that you become famous, just wanting mm. to put something that's, that is genuinely good, that has the right aspiration, as in it's it's trying to improve something. It's trying to teach someone, right? You don't need it to be the yep. most famous. You don't need it to work for everyone. But if a few people listen and they make some change in their lives, right? That's a significant amount of good that you can do. Totally. Um, and, and I think the crazy thing is, I mean, maybe it's a little different for you, you know, becoming a, a medical professional, you interact with people and have very tangible impacts on them on a pretty regular basis. Um, but certainly for me, I think this is the biggest impact on the greatest number of people I've had. And it was just some like, you know, throw it out there, side project idea. Um, and I, I think we did, a, we worked it out at some point, um, I think, when we're about 10 or 12 episodes in, if you add up all the like durations of the episodes and, and how many downloads they all got it was something like as if we had done a ted talk like a 30 minute ted talk in front of you know it was like ten thousand people or something like that in terms of listener minutes or like minutes of attention right assuming that people are paying attention when they're listening um <laughs> yeah well we see so you, you never know but uh, you know people should pay attention to driving and other things like that too so yeah, uh, you yeah, know, don't listen yeah. to us too carefully but um, in terms of, of, of impact size and the ability to sort of propagate and filter ideas right like we we spend a lot of time just like absorbing ideas from brilliant minds all over the world and filtering those and recombining them in interesting ways we think and <laughs> then propagating the ones that we think are most useful um to people who might not otherwise have come across them just because of not having the time or happening to stumble across the in initial sources right and so like this is this is almost the standing on the shoulders of giants idea that makes science such a powerful force in, in in human prosperity and and it, it's 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 really fantastic in many ways and i think what i really like about podcasting and i think why it's so popular and why it's so effective in a number of ways 
is it's almost analogous to watching your maths professor do the equations on the blackboard in front of you in real time. Mm. Right. There's something about the natural ebb and flow of human thought and conversation and the pausing and the ideas unfolding as it happens that is informative and important and useful in in many ways. Right. Like just looking at the equation doesn't give you the same kind of information as watching someone solve it, seeing what parts they think hard about and what parts are trivial to them and where the shortcuts and where the hard work is and all the intuitions. And it, unlike video, where you know there's a lot of time required in editing podcasting is pretty lightweight on that it's 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 quite a sustainable thing and and i think it just hits that perfect sort of equilibrium most of the time of conveying the right density of information and nuance and intuition while also being a sustainable thing to put out there unlike maybe books or or videos lectures or whatever you know right i mean i think the other thing is just that like what podcasting figured out is just how much time people spend in any given day that was actually free mental space, right? Like their morning mm. commute or the train ride or yeah. when they're doing something menial for their job, right? They're having to, whether it's literally something like sweep the floor. 100%. The fact that we can process visual and uh, auditory streams separately is is essential to podcasting success because commuting is, yeah, changed forever. I mean, and just the, the simple fact that I've seen is that people want good content, right? Like it's it's one of the more hopeful things is that, I mean, as much as, we know we've struggled with sort of the media since um, the U.S. presidential election in 2016, right? And there's been all kinds of allegations about what constitutes fake news and how we are vulnerable to it. But the podcasting scene has seen this renaissance of nuanced and long-form conversation where you can stumble and just pick yourself right back up. And mm. I think it's, it's one of those cases where, you know, if you make good content, right, that is just aimed at improving someone's life, right? That person will find you and they will appreciate it. Absolutely. All right. So number five Thanks. then. Do it. So number five was that technical books are undervalued. So going a little bit deeper than the pop science version makes the knowledge useful or applicable. It doesn't have to be a textbook. It can just be a well-written technical review. And the one that came to mind for me was the book Surfing Uncertainty. And that was a book on predictive processing, which I've been reading in anticipation of and teasing what is now just a mythical listeners. episode it's it'll never be released because it'll never be perfect i've decided it'll never, yeah. um, <laughs> it's, it's against the, the five hour long technical episode of predictive <laughs> processing which is the last hour is just us reading references out yeah exactly i mean i think the book is is, is on it's like 300 or 400 pages of of text and then 300 pages mm-hmm. of references it's incredible yeah but which is super useful for, for backtracking when you want to research things further but yeah yeah no it's, it's totally I, it's, it's a fantastic point um definitely like digging into the technical weeds on a lot of things especially if you can get a grasp of the mathematics which is hard when mathematics is involved um but i mean it, it confers such a deep understanding of a lot of things that we would otherwise only understand more superficially it's not the be all and end all but you're absolutely right yeah i just i think at the end of the day what you learn needs to be useful to you right if, mm. if it's going to take up space in your mind, it needs to pay rent for being there. And one way that your, mm, so your knowledge nice. can pay rent is in actually, well, paying your rent. You know, if it, if it can get you a job, <laughs> that's probably worth totally. my knowledge. But as a counterpoint to this, I wrote the sixth tweet, which is that many things that you want to do that seem too daunting are made to seem so by practitioners who are trying to signal intelligence and impress other practitioners. 
And this I really got from doing the Fast AI course, which is taught by Jeremy Howard and Rachel Thomas. But and, and the, the the key point here is that like not understanding something does not imply that you're not smart enough to eventually understand it. You see this particularly in, in academia where papers are littered with very fancy technical equations that don't even motivate for their use sometimes and often are thrown in there with the least amount of explanation possible. People will just assume an absurd amount of prior knowledge, right, when reading a paper, where it would maybe take three lines to introduce the concept. They will throw in the one line version of it. And I think Robin Hansen has made this point several times where when you're doing that, what you're trying to do is like, look how smart I am. I'm expecting my readers to be at least this smart. You must be this smart to enter. And so much of our collective knowledge is gated by this complete bullshit where we have the need to show that we are intelligent by obfuscating a clear and simple point, right? Richard Feynman is the hero for both of us in large part because he had no tolerance for sort of slathering fancy and needless detail and, and, and wordplay on top of your central idea. Yeah, I mean, the most brilliant minds can make things seem absurdly simple. And when you listen to the kinds of people who wrote the textbook talk about their ideas and their, their field, it's it almost seems trivially simple because they explain it so clearly because they have no need to do that. And, and anytime people are, uh, to use the term, oilering you, which we'll dig into in the future, um, link in the show notes, <laughs> but anytime, anytime people are doing that, it's, it's definitely a clear flag that people might not understand things as, as well as they seem to and that they're signaling other things. And the number of times you see smart, otherwise well-intentioned people just talking past each other because they're just assuming prior knowledge in each other that doesn't exist or being too embarrassed of not knowing something mm. to actually like backtrack is just so disheartening. Um, and I think that this this point really resonated, and I think that's probably why it was the most uh, retweeted and, and yeah, liked of the, the most, tweets in the thread. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's popular for my Twitter, which means like six retweets. So, <laughs> <laughs> But... I think the point I was making was separate from what you've said there, which is that often when someone is just clouding their arguments with meaningless or exceptionally um, obtuse wording, they might not understand it themselves. That's one version of this kind of phenomenon. But the deeper point that I was pointing to is if you just look at the incentives for an academic trying to get a grant to do some research, right? I mean, let's, let's take um, the field of artificial intelligence. Right? The reason that papers are littered with terms like Bayesian deep learning and quantum machine learning and um, general intelligence approximation. And in the paper, in the body of the paper, in the method section, it's just, it's, it's not those things, right? I mean, even, I mean, some people have have made the point that much of what constitutes artificial neural networks is just kind of logistic regression with a little sparkle, a little bit of extra source. And what what's happening there is there's a perverse incentive, right? A coordination problem or an inadequacy where you have to make your research sound more complicated than it actually is, because then what you're really trying to do is make it so complex that the the ground committee either doesn't know or they, out of not wanting to seem ignorant, say, Well, that that is important. Let's fund that. Right? And so I mean, often academics aren't acting in bad faith, but really do need to make it seem worth funding. And not many oh, people and, and not just worth funding also also getting getting favorable reviews from your from your peer reviewers right you, if you if you can make them think that you know what you're talking about then they just go oh yeah it looks legit 
because they don't get paid to do the peer reviews yeah. almost ever. So it's like, yeah, it's, and, and it, it's, it's something that's almost breaking science. And I think we'll, we'll probably come back to this when we're discussing coordination problems and mechanism design in the future, because it's a, it's a great case of how we are shooting ourselves in the foot in many regards. Right. Okay. So number seven was that one of the fastest paths to respect or confidence is getting strong. So if you read a book by Doug McGuff called Body by Science, pitch up to your gym, do deadlifts or something akin to them, and just see how people treat you differently in a year's time. Now, mm. this tweet, I think, came very much from just my own perspective as a guy, but I think it's equally applicable to anyone, is it's not that it's right that our society has such a, not a bias, but a way of selecting over different physical appearances, right? And different statures and different senses of bodily confidence. But if you do have the power to change that, like it's low-hanging fruit and the health benefits, the mental clarity benefits and the self-respect benefits are just worth it. Well, it's, it's through the roof in, in every way. And just like cognitively, every time you're going and doing a really hard rep, I'm talking intense workouts here, you're also doing a, a rep of your willpower at the same time, <laughs> right? And, and I think that's, and that's a non-trivial thing. And, and what that does for your confidence and, you know, your body's getting stronger, your willpower is getting stronger, your mind is getting stronger, and, and just the, the physiological benefits and how that ties into cognition. I, I think it's one of the most underappreciated things um, in, in terms of like most people know this, but yet don't act on it. And I think many of us are guilty in a large extent. And, and you've, you've made incredible progress in the, in the last year with your, the physical component of your, your routines and things like that. And it's, Why, it's been you. very impressive and inspiring to see. So yeah, like I definitely, it's, it's reaffirmed my commitment to, to these things in 2020. Yeah, I, just, I think it's easy for people like us, right? I mean, people of a slightly nerdier bent to neglect it. And that, that stereotype needs to change. Like there is no yep. good reason. If, if you can help it to be unhealthy, it, it, just from the simple selfish aspect of wanting to keep your brain working as optimally as possible for as long as possible. Mm. Like you said, if with people of a, of a more sort of, say, nerdy or um, introverted bent, I don't know, a great little nugget to throw out there is if you find yourself like playing with data and spreadsheets and things like that, and you, you actually enjoy that, if, if that seems like less work to you than going to the gym, then make a fucking spreadsheet for going to gym. If you find it easy to stay inside and play video games, but not go out to the gym, then turn going to gym into a game. Like gamify it, measure it, track it, make graphs and pretty things and geek the fuck out about it. And it becomes so much more satisfying to do like watching numbers and like graphs go up and to the right is intensely satisfying especially when your body is growing in proportion as well so i'll just throw that one out there but definitely yeah, to revisit that's and great measure. And a great app for that by the way uh, is an app called fit notes i know it's on android i got awesome. it this year you can it'll tell you the exact amount of kilograms that you've lifted like this is just this is everything Graphs going up. Oh, have you life. lifted a blue whale yet? I've lifted, so since the 1st of January, I've lifted 50,000 kilograms, or it's like 49,000 something, something, something. I don't know how much a blue whale weighs. How much, blue, how much does a blue whale This is what our podcast needs to answer. <laughs> all other meaning, all other information yeah. is, is meaningless. Also now, like, I, I do notice I've now become the stereotypical gym bro. How much have I lifted? This is what I need to know. That's, this is workout volume, folks. Weight times rep. 130 tons, but I don't know what tons those are. I'm now looking on the, on the full article. Well, either way, it's not, I'm not close to that. So, But, but you're, you're approaching it. You're approaching it. Yeah, You'll yeah, get yeah. there. Keep okay. at it. Keep at it. Let's do, let's do number eight. Okay, so number eight is neediness and neuroticism are the fastest way to put potential partners off. 
And side effects include pursuing goals for status, never really figuring out what you're truly interested in, and always looking over your shoulder to see what others think of your actions. I mean, this for me was, like, I think it's one of the most personal tweets in the thread. Yeah. And it really hit home on this trifecta that I think is a blight to becoming yourself, right? When you pursue things for the status that you would get by achieving them, as opposed to just this pure intrinsic drive to do it out of maybe curiosity, right? Mm. If you then don't take the time to figure out what you really are interested in because you're too busy seeking status, and if you're always acting in a way, I always envision it, like you're literally almost, you're acting in the world, right? You're Let's say you're at a party or you are presenting something to someone or you're just having a conversation. But if all of your actions are masked by the fact that some part of you is like peering over your shoulder to see how does this come across to my companions, to uh, someone you're attracted to, to even just people who aren't there, but who you want to act in such a way that, you know, if they were, they might hear about this, right? When you lend, if, when you let that level, when you let that level of inauthenticity into your life, you set yourself up for a kind of emotional pain, which can only come from betraying who you are and and what you actually want. Yeah. And I think this ties back into your first idea of just how to hold yourself to higher standards and, and be constantly sort of working towards being better for your own self. Like if you just make yourself into the kind of person that you can be more satisfied with than the person you were yesterday, and you just keep working towards that goal, you will just as a side effect, as an almost mistake of fate, attract the kind of people platonically and romantically that you want to have yourself surrounded with. Right. Right. Like the, the best way to, to, to fake it is to just be it. Right. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you just make yourself the kind of person you want to be, you'll attract the people that you want to have around you. Mm-hmm. And, and, it's, and it's, it's almost ridiculously simple. And yeah, it's one of those things that once you see it firsthand, you just can't unsee it. And it's pretty powerful. All right. So number nine is, I, I mean, I credited this to Joe Rogan, not completely sure of it, but it sounds like him. Fascinating. hundred percent. hundred percent. Jamie, bring that up. <laughs> so <laughs> what I think he said is something along the lines of like, would you rather be the surfer who like eats pizza and he's drinking beer with his friends? He looks super happy, really relaxed, completely unstressed, and is always healthy. Nothing really worries him. Or you're going to be like, that person, you know, who like typically wears a suit, probably works in a big city for a, a big accounting firm or something, and they're like they're stressed over which type of kale they're eating, right? Over optimizing trades off against stress. But more deeply, yeah. it's I've seen this with with close friends of mine, right? Where you can get so obsessed with what you're eating and like how you're exercising and how you're sleeping that it can cause you to be unhealthy and cause you to lose sleep and and, and cause mm-hmm. you by extension not to be able to exercise, right? And and the, the the temptation is always to look for more information. How can I perfectly optimize the amount of blue light that I get into my eyes before sleep? Or you can sometimes satisfy us, right? And say, eh, look, I've been okay up till now. Let me worry about something else. Let me just try not worrying. You know, let me just take a step back and see a good friend. So I like I like how vivid these examples are because they really do get it across as a, a nice mental archetype. It's 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 brilliant. I love it. And and I think what's also yeah, important to remember is with most things in our lives, we are so far from optimal that you get you get most of the value just making any kind of improvement. Um, trying to optimize generally tends to break things in most areas of of people's lives. 
you know, with, with, with some of the tasks, sure, that's not the case. But yeah, I've definitely had that as well, where, you, where you're like getting irritated because some guy's on the machine that you need to do next in your circuit. And now your 15 seconds of like catabolic optimal window are, you know, being exceeded. <laughs> and now you, you know, your body's at the incorrect ATP threshold and it's not Pareto optimal for your next set of lifts. And now how are you going to just, just, you know, man, just like Boy, go for a run. <laughs> Just like listen to a podcast, see some friends, have a drink every now and then, yep. live a little like, as well. Pick the things you're going to be obsessed with and don't compromise on those, but like pick one. Yeah, exactly. One at a time, yeah. one at a time. So number 10 is that contradictory advice may not contradict. The example I gave is that some people, the people who are like, let's say over conscientious, need to hear advice, something like people are responsible for their own emo emotions, not you. Whereas other people, maybe people who are more unconscientious, must hear something like failing to account for the feelings of others needlessly increases misery in the world. And the reason this, this idea was most clearly articulated in a post on Slate Star Codex called All Debates Are Bravery Debates. And when I read this, something just clicked inside of me because the intuition here is simple, right? If you just imagine personality traits or characteristics being distributed on, on some sort of normal distribution, right? And the people that need advice, right, are not the people right near the middle of the distribution. That's the first thing to note, mm. right? The people who need advice are usually on one kind of extreme. And so you see often on the internet, right, someone is giving some advice. Like, let's actually take this, take the point that we gave before, and then I'll maybe give a personal example, right? Some people need to hear, like, no, 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 you should be paying more attention to how you sleep, right? Like, if you just mm. have never thought about it, and you are sleeping terribly, then all those sites that will tell you how to start tracking your sleep or that like blocking blue light might help improve it. That, that's, that's the advice you need, right? But now imagine you've got some person who is already, they've bought blue light blocking glasses off Amazon. Their laptop is set to automatically shut down at a certain time. Right? And it's, it causes them so much stress if someone turns on a light in their home after sundown that they now can't get to sleep, right? That person needs to hear advice, something like, chill the fuck out, bro. Yeah, that, that, that advice. You know, like life is not determined by these like tiny variables. Just relax, right? And so actually, like a big part of giving advice is matching the advice to the person who needs it. And so you'll often see rebuttals to advice, which are frustrating because they are often not saying the advice is wrong. They, they are contesting the fact that the advice should have been given in the first place, saying, no, 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 like I already chill too much. I don't need, there shouldn't, like you shouldn't tell people to relax. People are already too lazy. And so, yeah. you know, in my own life, I've seen this because I have a roommate who is extremely conscientious. And so like, we're often telling you like, no, no, you don't need to worry about that. You know, like, don't think, like, don't overthink or don't let other people's problems become yours. But in my own life, I sometimes am the opposite. I will not realize that something I've said might have offended someone. And, you know, that's never a good thing. And so, like, I often need advice, like, no, 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 pay more attention to, like, how you affect others. And so it was, like, also quite a personal tweet and something that yeah. once I'd seen, you really do start to think about yeah, it's something you've you've mentioned quite a few times in our conversations, and it's a nugget of truth every time because so often it does seem like the world is contradicting uh, in terms of the advice out there, and it really is complementary, just separated temporarily in some sense. <laughs> yeah, Great. it's just it's just matching the the distribution. It's a matching problem. Exactly. All right, eleven is there is more content out there than you could ever hope to consume in a lifetime of reading or listening or watching. So consume things just in time not just in case that's a, a tim Ferriss quote and then from naval ravikant rather one mind-blowing page a day than 100 books a year i think this points to this general phenomenon right it's, 
you could overwhelm yourself with information and the temptation is always to mm. do so it's a bookmark another page add to watch later another video but first of all stockpiling resources like just in case you will always find another one right whereas rather it's like you, you determine some important task and you read the things you need like the minimum spanning set of things that will make you competent just in time to complete the task and in the same way like you you're aiming to to pick things which are so mind-blowing and so inf information dense that you're almost tempted to just keep rereading them and, and soaking it in exactly and 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 the important sort of flip side for me of this is that the just in time factor means that sometimes you will come across something and it's the right time to just explore it and dig into it like then and there and so you need enough slack in your life that you can afford to do that when those moments arise when you're like okay no today i'm going to learn about the hamiltonian like equations <laughs> bam and you're diving into it then and and i think that's a really important thing it's a very satisfying and that's generally when you learn the most is when you just go on those like rabbit holes but at the same time it's it's a really important useful way to do the just in time not just in case learning yeah number 12 number 12 is that asking what the meaning of life is is an ill-defined question or maybe i would put it now i would say it's an example of something you could call a wrong question the example here is that like a surfer like catching the best wave of her life isn't concerned with the meaning of life. And asking that question is a symptom of a misuse of your attention. And that question will go away when you're using your attention well. And I got this mm. off of Sam Harris's AMAs. They were the ones he released back in the early sort of subscriber days. I can't for the life of me say which one. But once I heard this, an incredible amount of my millennial early 20s angst just evaporated right you yep. can just realize you are perseverating on this nauseous clinging thought about i need a definitive answer to the meaning of life or you can just realize that like every moment where you're not thinking that thought is like perfectly self-contained and adequate in and of itself and the question dissolves and i promise you it does yeah it's it's a beautiful thing to observe when you're consistently hitting those flow states and and doing meaningful things and putting meaningful stuff into the world, it, it doesn't even cross your mind why you're here. It, it it's it's apparent. It's like it's like a lot of people phrase this as you know, know your why, is is the way I've seen it um, expressed in popular culture a lot. And like so, first of all, I think this was definitely the the tweet that like was most underrated. I mean, the scale here is tiny. It's, it's the difference between um, one and six retweets, so it's difficult to say. Um, but <laughs> the gold standard for measuring it's a gold the, standard the value I'm, of a I'm Twitter famous now. Um, but still, I think the, the, I think it's because the point is is fairly subtle. So I would disagree with saying, oh no, no it's about like finding something where you can use your attention well. It's like surfing is, is, right. is given as the example, right? Mm. I think it's more about the fact that like. Your attention is available to you at any given moment, right? Like the difference between surfing this beautiful wave and just you sitting, having a sort of mediocre meal, not talking to anyone in particular in your ordinary house, like there's no difference between the kind of attention you have access to that to between those two different situations, except for habit, right? Like there's something about surfing that makes it much easier that you just drop into like this exact moment and then the almost universal finding of dropping into like this exact moment as a self-contained entity is like a sort of feeling of peace and containment, right? And and the claim I think that, that Sam was making when when he said this is that all of your life is like this. Like those days when you're sitting dissatisfied and neurotic, like yes, you could say, well, go find something better to do. But I think the more mature and like almost 
higher level response is to realize that this kind of attention is always available to you, you know, with some sort of training, of course, and, and that training tending to be meditation. Yeah, I, th I think there, there is definitely a distinction there that I'm at least struggling to articulate well, but it has a certain feel to it. And once you know how that feels, it, it, it changes everything in, in, in some non-woo, but meaningful way. Yeah. Cool. Lucky number 13. All right. So 13 was a huge one last year in terms of an update. And it just says that learning mm. something new is bottlenecked by your working memory for key terms, axioms, and, and intermediate results. And this was pointed out by Michael Nielsen on Twitter. And he used Anki and, and spaced repetition, which is a technique you implement with Anki, to rapidly get up to speed and learn reinforcement learning. And you can apply this to something that you care about. And honestly, like when I realized this, right, that like part of what made me a reasonably quick learner in, in high school and in university is that I can hold like a reasonable amount of, of intermediate results, right? So like think about what learning is, right? You want to get to some complex final outcome, right? It's um, maybe like a, a big description at like a, a, a high level of, okay, you said the Hamiltonian earlier, so let's use that, right? Mm. So the Hamiltonian is a formalism of, of, it starts with classical mechanics and you can get it to quantum mechanics. And like when I was watching Leonard Susskind's lectures on this, a key part of getting to understand it is that when he defines all of the primitives, right? So the Lagrangian, well, you then need to remember what the Lagrangian is composed of. And if you can remember that, then when you then make some operations on the Lagrangian and generate a Hamiltonian, then you need to know like what those operations were and what they mean. And so when you realize it, like it can feel like you don't understand something, right? So then you, someone says to you, okay, so what's a Hamiltonian? And you go, duh, duh, it's, it's, it's a thing, it's energy. And you say, oh, this is too difficult. I don't understand. And what I realized from reading Michael Nielsen and then just paying attention to my own efforts at learning things is, no, 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 you actually do understand is that you are limited by your capacity to hold the intermediate building blocks of this idea in your head. And what it mm. then also feels like to learn something is that the building blocks just become, they're, they're memorized. And so I tried this. I tried learning a few things where you just put the, the key axioms or or primitives into a space repetition program like Anki. And you, in my experience, I think it rapidly, or it, 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 it speeds up the acquisition of new knowledge. Yeah, I, I think, and this, especially when applied to technical things that involve a lot of mathematics, especially the more abstract parts, this, this, is, this is more relevant than ever because I think the experience that many people have when trying to study abstract things is you'll, you'll, you'll work through and, and someone will okay, define something and then, okay, cool, and this, we'll call this A and define something B and define something C and define something D and then they go and E is A and D in the disjoint set da, 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 and define and define and define. And eventually all you're talking about is combinations of these other ideas that you've just encountered and just had defined and you, you simply can't keep all those components in, in, in memory at, at one time. And so it's this idea of like chunking ideas together. And that does take time and repetition and review. And so it's, it's almost ironic because some part of conceptual understanding may actually be just memorizing what some component means so that you can then work with those components. Like there's this idea, I think it's often phrased as like the seven plus minus three idea of, of working memories. So you can roughly keep like seven ideas plus or minus three in, in, your, in your mind at any given time. Um, and this is why like adding two three digit numbers becomes a little bit tricky. Uh, but if you can if you can reduce some collection of ideas to one chunk, it becomes one thing, right? So if if you can keep taking you know a handful of things in in memory at a time, combine them in some meaningful way, and make it into a chunk, then it becomes one thing. Then you can combine you know up to seven 
chunks and make a new chunk and make a new chunk. And that's how you can build up these hierarchies of complex, meaningful, useful ideas by working through them seven ideas at a time. That's a powerful thing. Yeah, I just honestly, thinking about learning like that has changed how I approach it. And I'm much more willing to put like seemingly dumb facts into a little space repetition program and rely on the fact that this is going to make acquiring detailed, high-level, useful knowledge significantly easier. Yes, it's, definitely. It's and, and we between... spoke about all of these things at, at length in our episode uh, on how to learn anything, I think episode 13, which was by a quite considerable margin our most popular episode uh, to date. <laughs> so if you haven't heard that, check it out. We, we do a, a fairly decent treatment of that, and it's quite a popular one. All right. So 14. 14 was the ideas of Robin Hansen and Kevin Simler in their book, The Elephant in the Brain, on signaling. And right? we've already touched mm-hmm. on this in our discussion of this thread. But signaling explains many institutional failures and inadequate equilibria, another book you should definitely read. In your own life, notice when motivation is to signal or due to actual interest and then double down on what is intrinsically interesting to you. So, I mean, I'm sure you can expand on this because I know that this is something that you've also taken. I mean, I I know that you are one of the people I can always rely on. When I point to signaling as an explanation for something, I don't have to explain what I mean by that to you. So... Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, just for anyone who's not familiar with the terminology, signaling is essentially when you are indicating something with an action for some usually like almost evolutionary purpose, right? So like, let's say someone's using very complicated terminology, perhaps they're not using the terminology because it's necessary. They're perhaps just signaling that they're intelligent and worth listening to, right? So it's like a subtext and sometimes it's even unconscious. And a lot of human behavior actually revolves around signaling things. Um, to each other and a large portion of that comes from our like survival imperatives and reproductive imperatives that we've evolved to have Um, and and yes a lot of the time in institutions that that can wreck things and in social interactions just you know personally from from individual to individual um, I think I think we probably need to do a full treatment on this Um, but uh, elephant in the brain is one that I've been meaning to read for so long but I feel like I've absorbed quite a significant portion from just following Robin Hansen um, and his his rants on on Twitter which are, are definitely um, worth a follow. Worth doing. Yes. Yeah. Uh, worth a follow. Worth a follow. Yeah. I mean, the book Ten is excellent because, as you say, so most people understand signaling when they imagine someone doing it as a kind of a bad actor, you know, the person who's mm. trying to show you how smart they are. But the book is excellent because it tries to point at a lot of things we do where it just seems counterintuitive that we do them at all or that we don't do them in another way. And so yep. the book finds is like a sort of common framework for, for understanding these these cases. The notion of signaling and this affects mm. everything from like how we practice healthcare to why we laugh or tell jokes to what conversation itself might actually be for. So I would recommend it to yep. anyone who's curious and, and wants a good sort of psychology read for the start of the new year. Yeah, I'm going to try and cram that onto my Kindle, which is already well full of books that I'm meaning to read, <laughs> but definitely one that I'm, I'm keen to dig into. Right, number 15. Okay, 15 was an odd one. And it goes, nobody has ever mean to you Nobody rejects you, but nobody accepts you either. They are always only accepting or rejecting their image of you, what they think you are. And it's from a quote by a little book called Awareness by Anthony DeMello, which I read on recommendation by Tim Ferriss. And the book is a bit odd, and there's like a sort of quasi-religious background, but it wasn't anything obnoxious or that would like put me off. And I found reading it over the course of about two days to be like, terrifically expansive it felt like 
after reading, I just felt significantly better about myself and, and where I found myself in my life. And this yeah. particular quote is, is about that. It's, it's realizing that whatever people react to, when, when people react badly to you, that's on them in, in some sense, right? They're, they're reacting to an image they have of you because just from a, a simple computational thing, no one has full access to your mind, right? Like no exactly. one knows your true motives or like how complex your life is or, or we're just running these simplified simulations of each other. Exactly. And it's, it's part of the social fabric. And then what I like so much about this though, is so like it, it gives you license to say that when people, when people reject you as making a mistake, but I like, I love that it brings in the opposite side and says, but listen, right. When people accept you, when they praise you, when they say you're such a great person, mm. they also don't know the full extent of, of what is not so great in you. And I think that balance and that idea that there's how people react to you and there's what you actually are is just an important and mature thing to keep in mind as often as possible. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a nugget of wisdom yet again. 16. Right. 16. You find out who you are by doing. This builds capability, which makes you do more. And then you become more of what you're capable of becoming. Do this enough and you'll have truly new ideas. And I linked to a post called The Cook and the Chef, Musk's Secret Source by one of my favorite blogs, Wait But Why. And I read this a couple of years back and it was quite life altering in some sense. The essay just talks about thinking about things from first principles. And in fact, way back at the start of this conversation, when we talked about the feedback loop is sort of the fundamental units of improvement. This blog post is the one that like solidified this and, and shows like how successful people can implement a really basic little loop that iterates through what they want out of life and what they are capable of doing. And yeah. just read the thing. Just read it. It is worth uh, it. Yeah, definitely. And I think another thing that sort of ties back into an earlier point with this is how podcasting is overpowered. Well, one of the beauties of podcasting is people are sort of thinking out loud and they're they're being forced to synthesize their ideas in conversation. I mean, this happens in conversation in general. Podcasting is just recording it and maybe adding some purpose to it. But that almost forces you to reach new conclusions that you otherwise wouldn't have. I think it's not a foreign experience to anyone to realize that some ideas that you can speak about with total conviction and clarity and understanding actually just came to you in the moment of having to say them out loud. And anytime you write something more extended or you code up some project or whatever you you really do learn and understand and synthesize by actually doing and it while not the direct point of number 16 it is actually a very important tangent from it and hmm. i think creating things is is super valuable in that respect because it's only by doing that we really understand very well put great brings us to 17 all right surprisingly little suffices to make an action or an interaction memorable. Asking people about parts of themselves seldom talked about, taking conversations in a bold personal direction, or just being playful unlocks the depths of a person. And it would be a tragedy if those parts of them were never unearthed. Yeah, yeah it, it almost ties into the idea of you should never be able to find anyone boring. Like if you're finding someone boring, it means you just haven't tapped into the part of conversation that will make them the most fascinating person you could be speaking to right now. Yeah. I think I just, I realized this just on a personal level, right? I mean, my family members, my friends, there are so many things which you just like on a personal level, I spend a lot of time thinking about, right? These are insecurities. These are desires. These are goals. And some of them are maybe ugly, right? I mean, not all of our desires are, are very pretty and some of our fears are irrational. And we're all these terrible muddled bundles of anxiety and, and 
capability for experiencing joy. And mm. I noticed that I would not resent someone for asking me more about these things. And so I, the simple test is, well, do other people mind? And turns out if you ask people sometimes fairly personal questions, you know, like, what are you truly afraid of? Or like, are you happy in your relationship, right? I mean, these are things which are maybe a little bit taboo to ask of, and I don't think those are particularly mm. strong examples, but they were the first two that came to mind, so bear with me. But doing that unlocks a new dimension to relationships which otherwise might seem stale or not worth it, and that was just yep. really important for me to, to think about. One, one fun way that I've found that you can do this playfully and uh, non-confrontationally is to almost turn it into a game whereby you can be like, okay, we're playing this game of like asking really like challenging questions of each other. You may be with some, you know, friends and some people you might not know so well. And you just throw like questions out there. Like, are all human lives equal? Like, in what ways did your parents fail you or like mess up completely? You know, tough, challenging questions like that. But it's almost gamified because you're making a challenge out of making tough, weird, nuanced, entertaining questions. Um, yeah, and really I think that's, you know, like yeah it, it's partly why games like cards against humanity are so so fun and, and successful it's because you get to drill past the trivialities and the weather discussions and get into the real nuance of what makes people tick and laugh and snort alcohol out of their nose when they weren't expecting you to say <laughs> the thing that you said um and, and and that's the real spice of social interaction and it's a lot of fun all right let's jump into 18 18 it says you won't notice when you do something for the last time. Life is all endings and good times fleeting. If you truly appreciate that there will be a last walk with your dog or a last chat with a random colleague, these things cease to be mundane. And this was an idea that came from Sam Harris on his absolutely excellent waking up app. And maybe out of all of these, it doesn't seem like it, but this one might have been the most thought about and talked about and mentioned to friends and family and anyone I care about idea. Is like you don't know when you get in a car and maybe this is like the last journey you will ever take. And you don't know when that's mm. true for the people around you. And mm. I don't want to be morbid here. I mean, there are other ways in which things can end, you know, aside from death, but death is the ultimate ending. But like noticing that just makes everything seem a little bit more precious. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh it's a that's a real deep cut. Such a simple idea, so accessible to everyone because it's a common experience we've all had and yet such a challenge to keep in mind and to really apply in daily life so something well worth remembering and writing out and pinning to a, a notice board yeah exactly all right the last one brings us to number 19 all right 19 is reach out but don't take rejection personally if you're interested keen to learn and have something to add to a ceo or a researcher or a writer or a mentor Many, but not all, will respond with encouragement and, and give you opportunities you wouldn't otherwise have gotten. But the key thing is, if they don't reply, they're probably just busy. Don't be discouraged. Don't take rejection personally. Yeah, uh, yeah, fantastic. Just like the cost of putting yourself out there is relatively little, especially if you are framing it in this don't take it personally way. And the potential upsides are unparalleled. So it's a great one to keep in mind and a great one to end on because so many of the meaningful things that happen in life come from just going well hey what if what if i just emailed so and so or what if i just asked about this or what if i just suggested that 
Yeah, exactly. You, you, you don't know what sort of opportunities you're opening yourself to. Definitely. Right. Well, that concludes the great tweet storm and discussion of uh, 2019. That had, uh, that, had, that had proper density and definitely a lot of ideas there that we had in common, but also some that, that you definitely um, brought to my attention and have benefited from already. So top-notch job with that tweet storm. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Then. Thanks for listening to Bits of a Tangent. If you enjoyed this episode, please get in touch with us and share your thoughts. You can email us at podtangent at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter or Instagram through the handle at podtangent. For more information about us, our backgrounds, and other projects we're involved in, visit our website at podtangent.com. There, you can also find full show notes, which have links to all the great content discussed in the episode. As mentioned in the introduction, we occasionally add bonus content related to the episode, or just mention favorite books, organizations, and other esoteric internet stuff. If you like the show, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes or whatever app you get your podcasts from. This lets them know that we're worth listening to and helps new people discover the ideas we discuss. The best way to hear about future episodes is to subscribe to us in your podcast app and, if you're so inclined, to enable notifications. That way you'll know when we've released something new, which is generally about once a week. Lastly, if you know someone who you suspect might enjoy the kinds of things we talk about here, consider sharing an episode with them. It really is the only way a podcast can grow authentically. We both love having these discussions and relish the opportunity to share ideas with like-minded people around the world. So your support and listenership are sincerely appreciated. Until next time.